It is eight minutes after 11 and welcome to the third and final hour of the Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon, standing in for Kathy Mutlashana on this Tuesday here on the Talking Point. If you're only just joining us now, wow, you've, you've missed an incredible show. It's been wonderful. We had so many fun conversations on the open line and in the previous hour we spoke about important issues. This hour, I, will, I want to focus on a conversation around communal land. Very important conversation in South Africa. The National Land Summit will be happening uh, this Friday and Saturday. So I thought it's important that we visit the issue uh, around land and specifically focus on communal land um, because that that really is um, in w- ways in which people interact with, with, with land rights, uh, land ownership, um, and land optimization in many ways, right? And so the question really is, who owns the most communal land and under what authority is it classified? But more importantly, what is the progress of land uh, restitution for communal land specifically? Um, and how do we fix uh, that process? Do we build a legislative framework around it? Uh, or do we just implement the existing legislative framework around it? But more importantly, I also want us to talk about how we can optimize communal land as tools for economic Institu- uh, for economic liberation um, and, you know, allowing one, um, you know, to allowing communities to build value and extract value out of the land through which they own. That's the conversation I want to have this hour. Joining me for that conversation is Nokwana Sihlali, who's a research officer at the Land and Account- Accountability Research uh, Center, as well as Constance uh, Mukhale, who is a coordinator of the Alliance of for Rural for rural democracy. Uh, Nokwana, let me start with you. Uh, South Africa has a vast number of, of pockets of communal land. Um, does it reach communities and is it optimized and used by communities in the ways that it should? Uh, hi, Oliver. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I think the most important thing that's coming from this week, uh, especially from the land summit, is the idea that communal land especially is being recentered as a conversation that not only sort of moves away from erasing black people from the conversation and invisibilizing them. Um, because the important thing um, in terms of making sure that communal land tenure is highlighted, I think it's also one of the things that you do sort of highlight on is that it's constitutionally mandated yeah. for us to ensure that According to Section 25, 6, and 9, we protect people's communal land tenure rights. So we mustn't just see a binary in society and just feel like because of colonial and apartheid disparities where we have the rural and the urban divide, all of a sudden everybody (laughs) in the rural landscape is possibly um, under the authority of traditional leadership. Right. So some of these conversations need nuance. How prevalent is that, though? And, 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 you know, I mean, I I don't know if we've got exact numbers on it, but how much of rural land uh, do people access through uh, traditional leadership and how much do they access directly? I mean, that information in particular was provided by a land report. I think it was published by the, the Department of Rural Development in 2017. But the other thing that they highlighted was some of this land is not surveyed as yet. So... Even when you're trying to measure how much of the land that already exists, it's quite impossible sometimes because this land, you have to also understand that the homelands were created. So 
in trying to take away land from black people, you're not really measuring how much land black people have. Yeah. So, yeah, even when we have the issues of uh, restitution, restitution is centered on getting back possibly the other over 90% of land that was lost. You mm. see? So even in that, when we're trying to categorize, there's still a need to measure the land. But the issue with measuring the land is that people... Um, especially maybe you have town planners and people who are involved in geometrics and the surveyors, they're not measuring the land according to how people live and mm. what practices are already being um, had in the different communities. And Oliver, what I want to highlight is that not all traditional communities in South Africa live in the same way. So when you go into a community, you have to understand what are your customary practices? How do you allocate land? How do you deal with land deprivation, land alienation? From there, you can determine things about how much land people have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Give us a call. The number to dial is 011-714-2006. Do you perhaps live um, on on land that you accessed through um, the, the local traditional leadership? Uh, do you live on communal land? Are you part of some sort of cooperative of any sort? Give us a call. We'd love to engage you on this. Uh, Constance, uh, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Uh, a lot of the times when rural, uh, when 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 um, you know communal land is have handed over to communities. The assumption is that they're going to uh, farm this land and they're going to become some sort of cooperative um, and somehow be plugged into an access to marketplace, um, you know, relationship of any sort. Um, and, you know, that the land is going to be turned into valuable land. Is that often the case? Is it often the case uh, that rural communities uh, are able to turn um, their land into economically productive land? It is not always. It is not the case. In fact, I, I don't want to say always the case because I have never seen a better case that I can refer to. The fact that the way the communal land is not well defined, so people don't. Um, there's no clarity in terms of communal land. Who is the beneficiary and who is not? So it is seen as an open access where everybody can just come uh, uh, from evicted from farms or um, wanting to do business and just speak to one person who sometimes the CPA chairperson or the traditional leader and just do business without consulting the community who's my member. So it is like an open access and no registered members are accurate so that we know when we do any development who to consult. So even the members have to get, um, for them to get developmental resources, whether it's bank loans or, or, or investments, they need a letter to show that the, they are owners. The permission uh, is granted for them to use that land. Mm. And that letter they has to come through gatekeepers who are sometimes traditional council or the CPH person. So there is no way that the, w- once we don't have an act which will regulate communal land, uh, to make sure that people living in communal land or holding their land communally can benefit uh, from uh, and, and develop their land. We have no uh, legislation or framework to guide that, and that is why people in communal land are vulnerable to 
any discrepancy, any person who comes to and want to do business, they they just uh, they just come, they lend. Yeah. There is no proper consultation and consent sourced from the beneficiaries. Yeah. Bongenkosi Zulu joins us. He's the Chief Director for Land uh, Tenure at the Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development. Bongenkosi, how much land um, in you know relative to of course the land mass of the country how much land is in the hands of um, uh, com- communities especially rural communities um, through you know uh, communal land programs uh, Oliver thank you very much uh, and good morning to you and the listeners we as you know South Africa we the total land surface is about 122 million hectares of that, 18% is in the hands of the communal in the in, in the former homelands, which is which we call communal land, which is 18% of the total surface. Of Sorry, did you say 18%? 18%. Oh, one three, 13%. Okay. Yes, one three percent. That is the land under communal areas, which is obviously under traditional leadership in leadership in the main. Uh, where our communal uh, 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 plus or minus 17 million of our population resides. Mm, mm. Uh, do you think that's a that's a, a ratio that is just and equitable, uh, given how many people live in, on rural land versus what the amount of uh, land being allocated through uh, communal land programs are? No, definitely not. It's, it's not uh, as 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 you know. The history, um, uh, where we're coming from, in terms of colonialism and apartheid, people were dispossessed of their land, were moved to homelands uh, in, in those areas where uh, the majority of black people live. And and, and that is why currently the, the department led by our minister and the in agricultural and reform and rural development and the deputy minister, we are engaging with these communities to try and address these land tenure issues uh, in these communal areas. Uh, as the last speaker I have spoken uh, before me about the issues of development and access, there are quite a number of legislation that, would, that have been passed. Some of them, they are, they are from the apartheid regime. Mm. They are still applicable in some of these areas. Mm. And, and that is why now we are driving towards coming up with a legislation. As you remember, there was once the Communal Land Rights Act, which was passed uh, uh, in 2004. Mm. However, it was challenged. So, mm-hmm. so we are in the process now, as as you would know, leading to the land summit. Uh, we've done the consultations on communal land to try and come up with a, a solution to the problems facing the people residing in these communal areas in terms of their rights and development that needs to happen in this particular area. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, no, I want to bring you back in here. Uh, some, uh, you know, and Bongingosi outlined some of the problems they've been facing. Why, why, why have they been getting it wrong? Why is it that what we're twenty eight, twenty nine years into democracy, and it's still mm-hmm. the case that many people are on land registries waiting for land uh, that could long have been transferred? I mean, the thing for us is we've seen that specifically the judiciary has moved forward with trying to put positive uh, judgments on the line. So we have Maledu judgment, we have the Kolobeni judgment, which basically solidifies and say rural citizens have these rights to their land, right? 
So even if you want to do any sort of development on the land, you need to consult. There needs to be um, consent received from people. So now when we're having conversations about expropriation without compensation, and it's at a very theoretical level, but it's already happening in the form of stands because there's no legislation that protects their rights fully. If we're going to have this constitutionally mandated um, law, IPIRA, we have it, but it's not enforced. And then it's interim. It's renewed every single year. Now, if you're putting um, the protections that are already given by IPIRA, and you're putting them into the CLTB, which is the Communal Land Rights Tenure Bill, there's no activity that's already occurred since 2017 on that bill. The min- I mean, we, we have a lot of activities right now with various consultations by uh, the Deputy Minister, he, he has um, consultations that he had. We have the Interministerial Task Team, which is having this land summit this week. We had COPTA and KZN hosting a land summit as well. What is this going to? If it's going to a communal land tenure bill, we have not seen public hearing around that. We have not seen open calls to make uh, or publish or comment on anything around that since 2017. Mm. So we don't know what is actually happening to make sure that people are already protected when we're really talking about expropriation on a theoretical level, but it's already occurring because there's no legislation to protect people. Yeah. Um, especially rural citizens. So that's the issue is it's a lot of political will involved because there are solutions that have been given by, we have the high-level panel report, which was published in 2017. We have the presidential advisory report, uh, report also, which was published in 2019. All of those have resolutions and recommendations on how to move forward with these issues, but there's been basically no activity to actively work on those. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think from that context, it would be that. Yeah, give us a call. 011-714-2006 if you would like to contribute to the conversation. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to raise. We continue the conversation on the other side of this. For unskippable, no click baiting, and cookie free, cookie, cookie, cookie. with lots of real followers and likes, Place your sales campaign on SAFM. Radio is still the best place to advertise your business at affordable rates. SAFM, with its national footprint and top personalities, offer advertisers distinctive opportunities to reach their target audience. Email sales at safm.co.za. SAFM, the influencer you can trust with him. This message is brought to you by Parliament, the Parliament of the Republic of South Africa. Parliament, following up on our commitments to the people, making your future work better. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. You can join the conversation we're having right now on uh, land tenure, specifically relating to communal land. In the and this is in anticipation of the national land summit that's happening this coming weekend. Uh, taking some of your calls right now, Musa out in Freyheit. Good morning. Good morning, Oliver, and to your listeners. Mm, go ahead, sir. What's on your mind? Yes, um, I'm I'm Musa from Freyheit, 32 year old. I'm owning a farm in in Freyheit, and I'm surrounded by communal land. And from my perspective, the biggest other um, challenge we have in South Africa is this. When the land is distributed to the people, it is not even explained how the land should be farmed. 
so we say that's number one. Number two, the issue is that uh, ownership of the land is given to everyone, and now everyone is expected to, to be a farmer. Meanwhile, not everyone is looking to farm. People are looking for employment. Now, in that particular way, now the land becomes not economicable because now everyone wants to own everything. So for, for lack of a better example, I'm a timber farmer, surrounded by timber farms. So if timber takes 10 years to mature, uh, a communal person will come at age four and cut the trees before it matures, before mm. it's economical, because they own it as well. And no one can come and say to them, no, you can't do this. They come and back and tell you, no, I also own the land. Mm. So I'm not sure what can we do that, yes, we bring back the land and whatever land that needs to be farmed is given to farmers and not just any mere person. Mm-hmm. I I I want to uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to to to, to that question. When when land is being uh, dispersed and distributed, wh- under what criteria is it done so? Uh, Oliver and the listeners, remember, land reform has got three legs or three programs, um, emanating from Section Twenty Five of the Constitution. You've got the land restitution, which, of course, we're dealing with persons or communities that were dispossessed of their land. Then those, they apply through the Land Claims Commission, Mm. get their land restored. In most cases, those communities or those persons are a group. They come as communities, and the land is restored and transferred to them as a group. We have the land redistribution, which I think maybe Musa from High Friday is talking about that part. The land redistribution, when it started, it started with a program which we were, it was a group of persons that were given grants by the state to acquire a piece of land in terms of land redistribution. It's not rights-based, it was access to land, just the redistribution in the, in the, in the main sense of redistribution, mm. which currently we have that program. And the last one is this one that we're talking about, the land tenure, where we're dealing with both the tenure security or land rights of persons living on privately owned land or commercial farming areas, or <coughs> persons or communities living in communal areas, which is the subject for mm. the summit that we are dealing with on the uh, over the weekend. Mm. So mm. obviously, if you look at what Mosa is talking about, you find that there are groups of persons or communities residing on a particular piece of land or a commercial farm where we negotiate exactly a labor tenant claim and it's, a, it's farm dwellers, they are communities, they are households, they are grouped together and they farm a farm. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the redistribution is different. You apply on an individual basis or as a group or Oh, yes. your line just cut there for a second. But I think I think we were able to, to, to capture the gist of what you're saying there. Going back to the lines, Busiso in Eshowe, good morning. Yes, good morning, Mr. Dickens. Mm, go ahead, what's on your mind? Yes, uh, I happen to have acquired land from uh, my communal headman. So um, I, I formed a, a co-op. Then I registered my co-op uh, with the Ingonyama Trust in order to get the PTO for the land in which I want to, 
to farm with indigenous fresh goats. And my question to your panelists is that since I have uh, formed a cooperative, but I was employed by the Department of Higher Education and Training, will will that not hamper me to 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 get funding since I I I am employed by the state? Mm, this mm. is my, my my main question because I I am the chairperson of the cooperative and I also want to apply for the funding from ATA, which is the agency of the agricultural uh, department. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Busiso. I really appreciate it. Your question has been captured and uh, we'll get uh, uh, one of our panelists to respond to it on the other side of this. Let's take, take your... It's 11.30. Let's take your news headlines. The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It is 25 minutes to the top of the hour. You are listening to the third hour of the Tuesday edition of The Talking Point, and we're talking land tenureship. Uh, before we we, 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 we uh, went to the break, uh, so we got a call uh, from a gentleman who says he's the chairperson of a cooperative, but he also works for government, and he'd like to access certain funding opportunities uh, for the cooperative. Will there be a conflict of interest given that he's an employee of government? And various other issues you raised there. Would you like to respond to that? Uh, Oliver and, the, and listeners, uh, uh, from Smoothie, so I think uh, from the from accessing funding from government, I think there are different criteria, but in terms of our own policies as the department, if you are a public servant, you don't qualify, but uh, as you as you were talking about ARDA, uh, the Agricultural Development Agency in case that then I think they, they, they they do have a different criteria. I think I won't be able to respond to whether you can access it or not. But if we were talking about the department and our policy uh, as a as a civil servant, you won't be able to access even the allocation of land. There is a policy that we recently approved uh, last year, uh, the, the beneficiary selection and land allocation policy, uh, mm. obviously, which provides for a, a, a grace period for persons uh, who are public servants. They have to have a, a grace period after they've uh, resi- uh, resigned from, from, from the public service. However, their spouses, if they are not um, employees of the, of, of, mm. of the state, they can access that support from our side as a department. But from the ARDA and the Depart- Provincial Department of Agriculture, I think they, he, can, he can contact them and find out if they can support him in terms of development yeah. of the land. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Ayabonga Tawe now also joins us on the line. He's the author of The Economy at Your Doorstep and the host of Metro FM Talk on Metro FM uh, here at the SABC. Ayabonga, uh, land ownership is an, is an important instrument to economic activation, more so rural land ownership, that's to say communal land. Where are we getting it wrong? Why is it that we don't have mass economic activation programs predicated mm. on land ownership through communal land tenure programs? Oliver, thank you so much for the invite and uh, good morning to, to your guests and to your listeners as well. Um, I mean, I think you ask a very important question. Um, and I think much of the discussion, while ownership is very important and I think we need to agitate and advocate for it, 
that can't be where the discussion ends. And a lot of my own work and thinking has been about how do we think through, especially in the former TBVC homeland states, so Transkai, Bokutatwana, Venda, Sky, and that type of thing. How do we aggregate the production that is happening on this land, right? It might be you producing bricks, it might be you producing grains, it might be you contributing to um, the rearing of livestock. How do we aggregate all of these economic activities of small producers, of labor tenants in some cases, and link them up to a market? Because we know that the food system is one of the most concentrated um, you know, uh, sectors of our economy, massive market dominance at different stages of that value chain. And similarly, so too is the building supplies industry, just as two examples. Now, one of the things I argue for is to say, if you don't integrate, as the RDP wanted us to do at some stage, mm. your social protection framework with your agrarian reform plans, with your industrialization plan, then what you're going to end up doing is to put buckets of money into these as different silos without any mutual integration between the two. So let me give you an example of what I mean. If, if people are producing as they are, with the rains being, having been so good over the last few months in many of these rural areas, and a lot of that production is going to waste, what kind of market do you access there? If you fully accept that a big part of the household structure of rural homes is largely old people and young people, all of which are heavily reliant on grants as a form of income. So surely your market should be trying to say, how do I access that market of grant recipients and give them the feed, the livestock, the bricks, and all of these other things that are being produced within local proximity, and thus doing create a vibrant market as an alternative to the mainstream building supplies and even mainstream food system. That's a typical example. Now, of course, you have to do it at the right scale. You have to make sure that your planning and execution instruments are right. But effectively, what that does is that it gives substance to that ownership. It's not enough to just own the land yet you're not able to have the implements and the tools or his cob or to be able to make use of that land. You know, industry has always argued about uh, the spatial disparity being a barrier to excess, right? That is to say, yeah. if, if, if you're trying to industrialize, um, you know, a, a you know pocket of land and say, let's say you have, you know, you produce 10 tons of concrete products uh, mm. to supply into a mainstream building environment, Unfortunately, you're way too far. I'm thinking about my uh, logistics costs piling up, yeah, and and yeah. I'd rather, you know, instead of sourcing these products from Tanin, I'd rather do it in Bulukwane, uh, uh, where there's a mainstream economy there. Um, exactly. how, how how do we use our our economic instruments to overcome that sort of uh, disparity? Well, we start with the state-owned companies that we have, whose ag- investment agenda or theory of investment ideally should be one that says, how do we if I'm a Sandra, target the non-told roads, their improvement, new capital investment, and even repair and maintenance in a way that facilitates industrial and economic activity where you did not have that kind of activity before. You know, if one looks at the annual report, for instance, of Sandra, and you look at the capital investment on non-told roads, so leave aside Gauteng, fewer improvement and all of that, they were spending at around 2016 or so, close to $6 billion per annum, right? Now, if you look at what that number looked like in 2020-21, it's shy of $2 billion. So effectively, you've had a massive $4 billion reduction in what we are spending yeah. on some of these non-told roads that can unlock this economic activity in many of the rural areas that we're talking about. Now, when you ask Sandra, Sandra says to you, well, it's because we've had to take some of the money and channel it towards you know, the freeway improvement and meeting our creditor obligations because we don't have ETOL. Now, that's not something you resolve 
at an economic level. It's something you resolve at a political level. Yeah, absolutely. And I, think, and I think that's just one example. I mean, there would be other examples, telecommunications, electricity, water rights, all of those things that are preconditions for any productive investment. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we also need to think about roads between villages. I mean, if you're saying in Zanin, there's somebody who's producing certain things that are needed by somebody in another village. They first have to go to the road that takes them to the main center before they are able to even have any trade and exchange among themselves. And so this idea of access roads, even alongside the regional, national, and provincial roads, I yeah. think it's a critical program I, I, that can I, also unlock I want us, I want us to touch uh, on that and about how do we get the capital flowing in the right sorts of places. On the other side of this, let's take a quick break. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. And you're still listening to the final hour of The Talking Point here on SAFM. My name is Oliver Dixon, uh, standing in for Kathy Mutlatana this morning. Um, and we're talking land tenure, communal land tenureship in particular, in the lead up to the National Land Summit coming up this Friday and Saturday. Uh, give us a call. What are some of your thoughts and comments? Send us a voice note if you'd like to participate uh, in this conversation. Uh, Peter Sitao, the Chief Executive Officer of Vumalana Advisory Front. I want to bring you into the conversation uh, at, at, at this point. Um, how do, how do we convince industries um, to spend money um, on communal land economic projects, whether it be agrarian projects, whether it be industrialization projects, any of that sort of stuff? And how do we uh, allow for communities and cooperatives like Spusisi, who called in earlier, to access the pool of funds that will help them access markets? Thank you, Oliver, for, for having me and, and uh, I, I, I suppose the most important point that one needs to highlight is the fact that uh, we are all agreed that land reform is beset with a number of challenges, as has been identified by a number of uh, reports, ranging from the President Motlante report, as well as the report on by the Presidential Advisory Panel on, on land reform, which was published fairly recently. But the reality is um, we need private sector players if we are to make any dent to the challenges that are currently that we are currently facing with, with regard to land reform. And we believe that there's a huge demand on the on the fisc on fiscal. I mean we we've had COVID uh, over the last two years. Uh, we've had uh, you know riots in KZN and other parts of the country. Now we also facing some People, with, people are facing hardship because of the floods and so on. So there's, there's a huge demand on the government fiscal. And mm. we believe that taking on private sector funding is the most expedient way through which we can address some of the challenges. Mm. And we need to promote partnerships be- between land reform beneficiaries and the private sector. Mm. And this is mm. something that we've been doing as Fumelana over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now, Kwan, I want to bring you back in here. Is there a, a, a fault in the system in how uh, land developers, economic developers, uh, and the private sector engage with communities where they seek to develop, uh, where you know communal land um, is under the ownership of certain communities? Um, and I mean, earlier on, you cited the Tolobeni case, but is there a shift in how that communication happens? I mean, that's the biggest complaint from communities. It's just a matter of engaging with them, with putting dignity and respect on the table because not land is not only economic, Oliver. So it has social and cultural meanings also yeah. in it. 
right? So if there's a mining company that says, uh, we want to mine, we found some minerals under some graves in your community, and then we're going to give you this much without having consulted, without having received your consent, without... Now we're already prospecting. We've already got a prospecting right from the Department of Minerals. How did that happen with us not having agreed to this? So these are the conversations that are being had with communities, and they bring issues to the fore where I'm not being respected according to my constitutional and mm, customary mm. land rights. So the biggest thing is meaningful consultation. There's this sort of a myth that communities are against development. Mm. And that's not it. It's just saying there's certain parts of my land that I I don't want you to touch. And that's very much okay. But I know what type of development I want in this community. And that's exactly what's happening in Tolobin, where they think there's sacred land that we don't want you to touch. But actually... We have a thriving tourism business that we mm, want to engage you mm. on. So basically, don't sort of highlight something that you feel, especially if it's going to be mining, where after that you've left uh, the, the land. I mean, sometimes the land is not even rehabilitated. Mm, it becomes mm. unusable after that. Come to find that it was arable land. It had um, historical significance. So when you don't value people in that way and there's no respect and dignity coming from even just the, the, the Lord themselves ask you to consult and get consent, mm. there's also three uh, prior and informed consent that's required. So all these processes are skipped saying this is for economic development, which is wonderful. No one is against economic development, Absolutely. but also the the lens that we're using must not just be that land is economic. Yeah. Uh, I, have a, I want to bring you back, Yomshagaz. Uh, one, how do we curtail, and is there a need to curtail at least the unfettered arrogance of private capital when it comes to communal land and how it imagines itself Im- immersing in communities? Mm, well, definitely. I mean, I don't think it's just private capital whose power needs to be curtailed. I also think particular, you know, um, other power brokers, it might be the local council, it might be the traditional authority of a headman, all of their power needs to be restrained in very specific and particular ways. Uh, because what we find in many of the communities, and the last speaker speaks of this idea of free, prior, and informed consent in the case of the Amatiba community out in the uh, eastern part of the Eastern Cape. Now, if one unpacks the situation and you compare it even to what's happening in Guazul, Nagal, and other parts, one finds, in some cases, a collusive relationship between private capital and traditional authorities, mm. whatever way they are defined, right? Now, now, I think we need to maybe get to the root of the issue as one of certain power brokers overlording over people's own uh, view on how their development should unfold. I mean, I like what the speaker is saying, that if people feel they have a particular vision of how their development is going to unfold, um, you can't have a situation where there's a top-down imposition mm. of a particular form of development. I mean, you know, if, if people are saying, we know, and I think, you know, outside of Johannesburg, there's no other place in South Africa where mining has led post-mining to any industrial development. I mean, we, what we have is a lot of ghost towns. Go to Valcom, go to Orkney, go to Coutonville now. Virginia. And show me whether or not, Virginia, yeah, and show me, you know, uh, whether or not there has been a lot of other industrial development outside of the enclave of mining. And so I think people will see that. You know, the people of Kolobeni have sent generations of their youth into the mines. They know the implications that those mines have on communities around those mines. And they don't want the same situation for themselves. Mm. Um, and I think there has to be space in how we talk about development 
as a process of social and structural change that is able to foreground the agency of those people in determining their own lives. Absolutely. Give us a call. O double one seven one four two thousand and six. Let's go to the line. Uh, Yanga, you live out in Mtata. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call, sir. Mm, go uh, ahead. What's I, I think my, I think my point. Uh, just uh, my take on this topic. You know, I think generally we as South Africans we are v- we are very blessed nation. You know, but it is very it is so painful to see what is happening. You know, I live in Canada. It is so so painful to see people living here, and they live and go to the Western Cape. They live beautiful land here. They go and live in shacks there. You know, but uh, a personal story, Justin J. Uh, ever since I took a decision to start farming in my garden, my cha- my life changed. You know. Mm. Uh, uh, initially, I was the kind of a person who was looking for jobs and all these things, frustrated because I couldn't find a job. And on the radio, I had a woman, she's from Matatiel, uh, she's called Manzo. She was motivating young people, saying, young people, stop this thing of looking for jobs. If you, you, you work the land, you can never starve. Hey, brah, I, have a, I have a testimony today, even my mother... She doesn't use the tablets of high blood pressure because she's eating, you know. It's it just, but when I see my neighbors, everyone is looking for a job in Cape Town, you know. Yes, these people, they live in terrible conditions there. I think until we liberate the mind in South Africa, you know, as people, you know, and leave this thing of believing in Ramaphosa, because Ramaphosa is a guy just like any other person. Mr. Ramaphosa, I don't believe he can change my life until as citizens we decide mm. and take yeah. a decision to take, you know, uh, yes, that, that's my... Th- thank you so much for your call, Yanga. I really do appreciate it. Cyril in Cockstart, yes. good morning. Good morning, Oliver, uh, and thank you for taking my call. Uh, I want, Oliver, your guest to correct me if I'm wrong. I've listened to this conversation, and I agree with one of the guests that saying there are three pillars to uh, address the inequality of land ownership, which is restitution, redistribution, and land and tenure. Now, there's a summit coming up of land and tenure. But uh, what I'm hearing and observing there is a focus on communal land. Now, here's my uh, 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 input here, or my, my concern. Mm. The Khoisan are marginalized when it comes to land, right in the Constitution, the South African Constitution, in Section 25, Subsection 7. Now, I think our guest there, and you included, is a favor this matter, that the question is uh, marginalized. So we cannot, we have these acts of restitution act, redistribution, land and tenure. Now, I've lodged a collective land claim, I'm a Greek and I've led, lodged a claim that entails all the property urban and rural, and there's more than 350 farms at 300 acres. Now, that'll give you a story. And, and it's a Greek land for the Fazuna Chow. Now, if one wants to go to the facts, because I heard you asking certain questions, one would like to know how, many, how much land was transferred to the Restitution Act, to the Redistribution Act, and now the land in Kenya. And that land that was transferred because my, 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 the aim, the focus of government 
is to readdress the inequality. Yeah, that yeah. is only 13%. Now, how much of that land in size was transferred to the descendants of the Khoisan? Now the community. Let's 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 give uh, Bonginkosi Zulu an opportunity to side. answer because because I'm, I'm I'm glad yeah, we have Bonginkosi on the, the line with us. Side, yes, but the communal side is again the descendants of the Khoisan did not live in his homeland. They are lucky, and I'm not so lucky as far as the size of the ownership of 13% is concerned. But that they are lucky that they are own some land which lie dormant when you travel through his homeland. But what about the question that was taken away, removed from the uh, rural areas, shoved up in places like uh, Bishop's uh, Labors? Yeah, and yeah. I can name all those those things there. Thank you so what much, sir. Sir, yeah, sir. Your 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 sentiment well 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 captured. Bongengosu, you know, sir, raises an important issue: the complexity of our history uh, and the confluence of economic, social, and political problems. Um, you know, may often uh, leave out and slip through the cracks. Things such as the transfer of land, communal land. Um, into the hands of, um, you know, native Khoisan people. Um, do you want to respond to uh, to Cyril's uh, question there? Thanks, Oliver, and thank you to the to the to the to the to the to the question. Remember the what we have done. The, we have during these consultations that I was talking about leading to the summit. We have consulted with the leadership of the Khoi and Sen, they have raised their issues because currently in terms of their representation, they don't have communal land. However, they've raised their issues which are going to be further discussed or debated during the summit in such a manner that we have made sure in the program that in the commissions, there is a commission that will specifically deal with the land-related issues that affect the Khoi and San communities. Mm. So that that engagement has happened, and we have consulted with And will continue well. to happen at the summit, is and, what you and say. And they will obviously continue to happen. Okay. But on, yeah, but I think on the issues of communal land, I think, uh, Oliver and the, and the listeners, what is very important is for us to arrive at a point where we deal with the issue of land rights of persons and communities mm. living in this particular area. Because mm. that obviously, once that is clear, it will unlock any development because we know who to talk to their rights. Currently, as you know, communal land is held in trust by, mm. by our minister which the minister is saying he wants to give this land back to its own, to, to the original owners who are these communities in these communal areas. Mm, mm. So I, the hence, hence this consultation started in before t- 2017 and is still continuing even after the land summit so that, because it's a complex, we're dealing with a very complex and emotive issue mm, uh, mm. Where in these communal areas. Because yeah. there is no debate about people's rights in communal areas. Yeah, absolutely. Ayabonga, in the last two minutes we have here, um, I, I maybe want to put this to you. Do we have sufficient and adequate uh, legislative frameworks to deal with uh, the complexity of our land problem? Or are there gaps that we need to look at that specifically also pertain to how we develop land as economic catalysts mm. and activators? I think indeed there are gaps, Oliver. Um, and the gaps are not only insofar as the countryside is concerned. I think a lot of our discussion 
is talking about commercial agricultural land, communal land in the countryside. And I think where a lot of the legislative gaps exist are also in the urban context as more and more people move to our cities. And I think that links in a way to the point Yanga is making, where Yanga is saying, you know, uh, because there's a concentration of industrial and economic activity in a few centers, people are willing to leave land as an asset and go and live in a, a shack and uh, live a difficult life out in places like Cape Town. Largely because it shows the point I was making earlier that while ownership is critical, it's necessary, it's not a sufficient condition to be able to survive yeah. off of the land. And I think we need to address that. Maybe just a last comment, I think, insofar as what Cyril is raising. I think we are still suffering from how dominant apartheid history is and how we have our ethno-national discourse. Because the assumption that the Khoisan are only those who are now in the national population registered deemed as colored, I think is problematic. Yeah. Uh, because in a way, if you look at the history, for instance, among the people I come from, there are clans who are distinctly Khoi, San, and many who draw their lineage from the Krikwa people. Yeah. So I think if there is going to be any historical tally or account that happens, it has to be one that is interested also in creating new ethno-national categories um, and really broadening, I think, how we define who is African? Because in many ways, I think a lot of the debates... And the trans-border complexity uh, that issue. comes with it, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. If, if you live in the Northern Cape, chances are you've got families uh, 50, 50 kilometers across the border. Exactly. In the Eastern and in the Western Cape and in the Northwest. So so in a sense, I think I think we need to kind of unchain our minds from this uh, apartheid uh, ethno-national categories and yeah. uh, the kind of inheritance that they've given us yeah thank you so much for your time really do appreciate it Bonginko Sizulu the Chief Director in land, uh, for Land Tenure at the Department of Agriculture Land Reform and Rural Development thank you for your time this morning Peter Sitao appreciate your contribution uh, on this conversation as well as Nogwanda Sihlali uh, who is a researcher at the Land and Accountability Research Center Konstant Mukhale who also joined the conversation earlier on is the coordinator of the Alliance for Rural Democracy thank you much thank you so much all for your time really really do appreciate it thank you to you for listening uh, to the Tuesday edition of The Talking Point. Um, thank you so much for en engaging me and embracing me on this platform. Uh, really, really do appreciate it. Uh, you know, so many people are saying on the WhatsApp line, ah, Oliver, you sound so great to be here, but you know, where are you? Guys, I have a show. It's on Friday. Please do listen to it. Uh, it's at 6 p.m. It's called This Week Today, where we do deeply week dive, uh, deep dives into the top, most topical issues and most important issues to our body politic and democracy uh, every single Friday. I'm back with you tomorrow, but not on The Talking Point. You can find me on The Drive Show, but uh, you can continue to listen to. Of course, I encourage that you continue to listen uh, to SFM throughout the rest of the day. Up next is uh, the update at noon with Sikina Kamwendo.